Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for August 1st through 7th, 2022. This is covering Job, chapters 1 through 3, 12 through 14, 19, 21 through 24, 38 through 40, and 42. Wow. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hey, Scriptures! Awesome! Great to see you. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 46 minutes, 53 seconds. Okay, but what would that be daily? 6 minutes, 41 seconds. So easy. Now, we rattled off a lot of chapters of Job, but the reality is Jay and I are going to cover them all. And if you want to read all of Job, and you should, it will take you... 2 hours, 4 minutes, 58 seconds, or daily, 17 minutes, 51 seconds. Still so doable. Now, when John says we're going to cover them all, what we're going to do is give an overview of the whole story. And for that, we're going to make a selection of a lot of chapters. As a result, it's not easy to point out time codes because we're going to be jumping all over the book of Job. So even though this is not as detailed as we normally do, these time codes should help you take a look at the sections you're interested in. Or buckle up and we'll talk about it all together. So let's jump into it. The book of Job. With Job, we start a new section or subsection of the Old Testament. Earlier in the year, we talked about the Old Testament being divided into three sections, the law, the writings, and the prophets. The law consists of the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We've already studied those. The writings in Christian Bibles is divided into two sections, the historical writings and the poetic writings. The historical writings include the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So we finished the historical writings in our last lesson. The poetic writings include Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. In this year's Come Follow Me manual, there are some helpful midsections called Thoughts to Keep in Mind. Before this week's lesson, there's one called Reading Poetry in the Old Testament. Here's a thought from the first paragraph. Quote, In the Old Testament books that come before the book of Job, we find mostly stories— narrative accounts that describe historical events from a spiritual perspective. Noah built an ark. Moses delivered Israel. Hannah prayed to have a son, and so on. Beginning with Job, we find a different writing style, as Old Testament writers turn to poetic language to express deep feelings or monumental prophecies in a memorable way." Yeah, that's really important to know the kind of literature that you're reading. We're going to explore more of that in coming episodes. Let me also include from the seminary manual this introduction. It says, The book of Job is written almost entirely in poetic language, with a prologue and an epilogue in prose, and is often classified as wisdom literature. One of the book's most unique qualities is that it asks two difficult questions, why do righteous people choose righteousness, and why do the righteous suffer, but offers no simple answers. 
Instead, the book of Job invites faithful readers to exercise faith in God, as when Job said of the Lord, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. The book also urges the faithful to look beyond the trials of this life to the glorious resurrection made possible by the Savior. For Job boldly testified, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and in my flesh shall I see God. The book of Job is also distinctive for a passage confirming the reality of the premortal life, in which the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of the earth. Modern revelation confirms the existence of the man Job. As recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants, Jesus Christ comforted the prophet Joseph Smith by comparing his afflictions to those of Job. Thou art not yet as Job. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgression as they did Job. Ezekiel and James also attest that Job was a real person who went through very real suffering. So if Job was a real person, when did he live? Here, we really don't know. It's certainly safe to claim that he lived before the time of Ezekiel and after the time of Adam, but that only narrows it down to a range of over 3,000 years. The book itself does give us a few clues. In Job 22.16, Eliphaz references the flood, so it would seem reasonable that he lived sometime after the flood. Job 42.16 tells us that after all the events in the book, Job lived an additional 140 years. Some scholars approximate that he lived to be about 200 years old in total. This would be an unusual age later in the Old Testament, but not so unusual during the time of, say, Abraham, who lived to be 175. Also, while there's mention of sacrifice, there's no mention of the tabernacle or temple or the Levitical priesthood. This causes some scholars to believe that Job lived before Moses. Once again, though, these are all guesses based on clues in the book. When all is said and done, no one knows exactly when he lived. So let's jump into the writings of Job, starting in chapter 1. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Notice right up front the use of the word perfect to describe Job. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus commands his disciples to be perfect. The footnotes tell us that the Greek there means complete, finished, fully developed. But the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Without a footnote, another tool one could use to try to understand a term like this is to type the reference into your favorite search engine you should see a link to biblehub.com. Here you can compare multiple versions of the verse. Notice that in many translations, they use the word blameless instead of perfect. If we click up here, interlin, which stands for interlinear, you will see the Hebrew word and get a more nuanced definition. Here you can see that the Hebrew also means complete sound, wholesome, having integrity. It's important not to think that perfect means without error. Otherwise, we couldn't really relate to Job in this story and it would inhibit what we could learn from him. 
Instead, think blameless, wholesome, complete, with integrity. Let's go on to verse 2. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred she-asses, and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. The seminary manual gives us this further information as we go forward. Job chapter 1 verses 6 through 12 contains a poetic rendition of a conversation between the Lord and Satan, who became the adversary of mankind following his rebellion during the council in heaven. Satan is a Hebrew word meaning adversary. These verses in Job 1 use the form ha-satan, meaning the adversary, which describes the devil's role here. Let's invite my friend Susan in to act as our narrator today, and let's go through this poetic rendering of a conversation between God and Satan. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. From the seminary manual it says, The Lord does not really make agreements with Satan. The conversations between the Lord and Satan in the book of Job are presented in a poetic narrative that emphasizes Satan's role as our adversary. In reality, the Lord has power over Satan and has no need to bargain with him. Right, and as we were preparing for this lesson, I pondered this particular agreement between God and Satan. I've talked with people about this passage, and some feel that it represents God in a negative light, perhaps as someone who's boastful and is deliberately allowing Satan to torment Job to win a bet. But with all that we've learned about God through our Come, Follow Me study, I see it differently. What if we place ourselves in the role of Satan? What if we are challenging God with the notion that righteousness only comes from someone blessed or protected of God? In other words, blessings come first and righteousness follows. And also consider this possibility. Rather than assuming that the tragedies of Job are a direct result of a boastful bargain, is it possible that these tragedies were going to occur anyway? After all, hardship and trial were part of our Heavenly Father's plan from the beginning. It's why we're here. In this sense, a loving Father in heaven has an opportunity to teach us, his children, that our short-sighted natural conclusions about the nature of man and righteousness are immature and incorrect. 
These conclusions are represented not only through Satan, but through Job's friends as well. Pay close attention to what God is trying to teach us in his words to Satan and to Job as we go on. Great insight. Let's read ahead and find out what it is that Job lost, starting in verse 13. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and behold... There came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, just a quick note there. When it says the young men, most translations translate that as young people. The Hebrew does indicate young men, but the context of the story indicates everybody, all of the offspring of Job died in this accident. Right. So Job loses all of his oxen, donkeys, sheep, camels, and servants, except four, evidently, who escaped to inform Job. Most tragically, though, he also lost all ten of his children. And while some of these losses were caused by other people, for example, the Sabaeans stole the oxen and donkeys, and the Chaldeans stole the camels, some of these losses were acts of God, as we would call them, Fire of God from heaven destroys the sheep. A great wind destroys his oldest son's house and kills his children. His entire livelihood and posterity was instantly gone. How would you have responded to this? Can you imagine it? How have you dealt with tragic loss in the past? Let's look for how Job dealt with it. In verse 20, Then Job arose, and rent his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground, and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. What impresses you about his response? How can we get to a place where we can have the eternal perspective to see tragedies that way? Consider as we continue to study and take a look at Job chapter 2. In the first two verses, they introduce another poetic rendition of a conversation between the Lord and Satan. Let's pick it up in verse 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? A perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and its Jewish evil. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. 
And Satan answered the Lord and said, <laughs> Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So take a look at how this is different from the first challenge. If Job loses his health, how will that change his relationship with God? Yes, he's lost all of his possessions, but he still has his health. What if he loses that? Picking up in verse 7. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Well, what a sweetheart. Have we ever made someone suffering worse by our lack of faith? Has anyone unwittingly done that to you? Let's take a look at verse 10. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. In the last few verses of the chapter, we are introduced to three of Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They came to comfort Job in his afflictions. Job expressed some of his thoughts and feelings to his friends, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. And skip down to verse 25. For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. That's always been kind of an interesting verse to me. Recognize that Job may have had an anxiety early on that he might lose his possessions and his family, and here it's come to pass. Yeah. Let's skip ahead a minute to Job chapter 6, starting in verse 1. But Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were throughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together, for now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, wherefore my words are swallowed up. Now, as we go forward, we will be jumping chapters, like I said at the beginning. What we're trying to do here is pick themes, like we saw here in Job 3 and in Job 6. So, ahead, we'll be looking at chapters 4 through 16 and grabbing pieces from those. Each of Job's friends in these chapters expressed his belief that Job's afflictions had come upon him because of something wrong that he had done. For example, let's take a look at Eliphaz in Job 4 and 15, starting in 4 verse 7. Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed." 
jumping ahead to 15 verse 4. Yea, thou castest off fear, and restrainest prayer before God. For thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemneth thee, and not I. Yea, thine own lips testify against thee. Wow. What a nice friend. So let's take a look at what Bildad had to say, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite, and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression, if thou wouldest seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee, and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Skipping down to verse 20. Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. <laughs> well, he makes a strong case there. Yeah. Let's take a look at Zophar in chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Then answered Zophar the Naamathite and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee, less than thine iniquity deserveth. Wow. <laughs> so interesting here, not only are they accusing Job of sin, but look at some of the language here. Bildad in chapter 8, verse 2, saying that basically Job is a blowhard. His words are like strong wind. And Zophar saying that there's these multitudes of words and should a man full of talk be justified? In other words, yeah, you speak a lot, you know? Yeah, and he, he imagines too, boy, I sure wish God would show you wisdom. Right. Indicating like, I know God's <laughs> wisdom, but uh, why won't you learn your lesson? What a good friend. Now, to be fair, Zophar has a point. God's wisdom is certainly far and above anything that we could come up with. But to assume that Zophar knows it, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah. But Job's problem was not sin. Yes, sin can bring tragedy, but tragedy will also happen regardless. It's what we signed up for. It was in the brochure. <laughs> Sad but true. I love Job's evaluation of his friends, his well-wishers. Job chapter 16, verse 2. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. <laughs> it always makes me <laughs> chuckle a little bit. Oh, you guys are terrible. You're the worst. We have this quote from then-President Dieter F. Uchtdorf. This comes from April 2010 General Conference. He says, quote, It is unworthy of us as Christians to think that those who suffer deserve their suffering. Our Savior willingly took upon himself the pain and sickness and suffering of us all, even those of us who appear to deserve our suffering. In the book of Proverbs, 
we read that a friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Let us love at all times, and let us especially be there for our brothers and sisters during times of adversity, end quote. Sound advice. That reminds me of times that people were there for me and helped me through suffering and adversity and were a strength to me. And that doesn't always mean that we just agree with people or even accept that they've made the right choices, but it does mean showing love. And that can come in so many different forms. So Job doesn't know why this is happening, but he knows in whom he has trusted. Chapter 10, verse 2. I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. And also in verse 15, if I be wicked, woe unto me. And if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head. I am full of confusion. Therefore, see thou mine affliction. Chapter 13, verse 13. Hold your peace. Let me alone that I may speak. And let come on me what will. Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in mine hand? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation. For an hypocrite shall not come before him. There are many times we will not know the reason for our suffering. We may not have any control over that. But we do have control on how we respond and how we trust the Lord. And that's really beautifully illustrated in those verses that we just read. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. Don't condemn me. Show me why these trials are coming. Show me why you're contending with me. And I'll fix me. You know, it's a wonderful attitude. Well, and it's an eternal perspective. Job is looking at this for how he can be better, it seems. Elder Richard G. Scott, in a talk in the 1995 October General Conference, said this, quote, When you face adversity, you can be led to ask many questions. Some serve a useful purpose. Others do not. To ask, why does this have to happen to me? Why do I have to suffer this now? What have I done to cause this? will lead you to blind alleys. It really does no good to ask questions that reflect opposition to the will of God. Rather ask, what am I to do? What am I to learn from this experience? What am I to change? Whom am I to help? How can I remember my many blessings in times of trial? This life is an experience in profound trust. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in his teachings. Trust in our capacity as led by the Holy Spirit to obey those teachings. To trust means to obey willingly without knowing the end from the beginning. To produce fruit, your trust in the Lord must be more powerful and enduring than your confidence in your own personal feelings and experience. Close quote. I love that. That's so great. Our trust needs to be more powerful than our confidence and trust in ourselves. Yeah. That's awesome. 
Let's take a look at chapter 17, starting in verse 1. My breath is corrupt. My days are extinct. The graves are ready for me. Skipping down to verse 15. And where is now my hope? As for my hope, who shall see it? So we're getting a sense here of Job's despair for his situation. In chapter 18, after Job mentioned that he might soon die, one of his friends, Bildad, spoke about the state of the wicked who do not know God, implying that Job was also wicked. This is Job's response to his, quote, friends. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will ye vex my soul? and break me in pieces with words? These ten times have ye reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me. Skipping to verse 17. My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. Yea, young children despised me. I arose, and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me. And they whom I loved are turned against me. My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Have pity upon me. Have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Okay, so quick note on that last phrase when he says, and are not satisfied with my flesh. Take a look at footnote 22a. It means the state of my body or suffering. So ye are not satisfied with my suffering, the state of my body. Another side note, take a look at verse 20. This is the origin of the expression, the skin of my teeth. It comes to us courtesy of William Tyndale, the first to translate the Bible into English from the original Greek and Hebrew. For more information on Tyndale and the various translations of the Bible, check out our video, How We Got the Bible. That's a great idea. But this is what Job knows. Verse 23, chapter 19. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Hey, how fortuitous. Ah. Going on, verse 24. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So what does Job understand about the resurrection? And how does that give him hope? Our testimony of the Savior and the resurrection can give us hope in the midst of our trials. Elder Dallin H. Oaks in the April 2000 General Conference offered this, quote, The assurance of resurrection gives us the strength and perspective to endure the mortal challenges faced by each of us and by those we love. Such things as the physical, mental, or emotional deficiencies we bring with us at birth or acquire during mortal life. Because of the resurrection, we know that these mortal deficiencies are only temporary. Close quote. Notice how Job desired to record his testimony in verse 23. I love that he wants it written permanently, this testimony. How can writing our testimony 
bless us? How can it bless those around us? Consider that as a tool to strengthen and anchor your faith. Now, for extra credit, if you'd like to hear Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26 set to music, check out Movement 45 of Georg Friedrich Handel's masterwork, Messiah. This piece marks the beginning of the third section of Messiah, emphasizing the second coming of Jesus Christ. It follows the famous Hallelujah Chorus. We'll include a link to Sonia Yoncheva's performance with the Tabernacle Choir in the description. Nice. Now, in chapters 20 through 22, Job's friends insisted that the wicked cannot prosper. Job acknowledged that sometimes the wicked do prosper in terms of their worldly possessions, but ultimately, the Lord will administer justice on the day of judgment. In Job chapter 23, Job taught about the ways the Lord had blessed him by allowing him to experience trials. For example, in Job chapter 23, verse 6, it says, Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. And in verse 10, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And then in verse 16, For God maketh my heart soft, and the Almighty troubleth me. I love those descriptions. Yeah. In chapters 24 through 31, Job's friends continued to challenge Job as he responded to their accusations by expressing his faith in God, thereby showing his humility and integrity. In chapters 32 through 37, Elihu, another of Job's friends, spoke out against Job and his other friends because he believed they had not been firm enough with Job and had failed to answer Job's questions. Elihu also discussed some challenges that are common to all people. So the problem here, as we have been reiterating throughout the lesson, seems to be a difference of perspective. Here's another quote from Elder Quinton L. Cook. This comes from October 2011 General Conference. He says, quote, From the limited perspective of those who do not have knowledge, understanding, or faith in the Father's plan— who look at the world only through the lens of mortality, with its wars, violence, disease, and evil, this life can seem depressing, chaotic, unfair, and meaningless, end quote. Good point. Got to have the right perspective. So let's take a look in Job chapter 38, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. What does the Lord want Job to answer? Let's take a look in verse 4. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? President Thomas S. Monson in the April 2010 General Conference said this, quote, We lived before our birth into mortality. In our pre-mortal state, we were doubtless among the sons and daughters of God who shouted for joy because of the opportunity to come to this challenging yet necessary mortal existence. 
we knew that our purpose was to gain a physical body, to overcome trials, and to prove that we would keep the commandments of God. Close quote. Nice. So the rest of Job chapter 38, as well as Job chapters 39 through 41, show that the Lord illustrated his knowledge and power by asking Job many questions about how he created and still directs the earth, emphasizing the limited knowledge and power of humans. The Come Follow Me manual has a quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell, which we've used before. It's a favorite. This comes from October 1998 General Conference. Elder Maxwell observed that, quote, When we are unduly impatient with an omniscient God's timing, as Job seemed to be, we really are suggesting that we know what is best. Strange, isn't it? We who wear wristwatches seek to counsel him who oversees cosmic clocks and calendars, end quote. Well, that's, that's quite a perspective. I love that. Wow. Wow. We're so small. But, you know, let me offer this. Have you ever watched a two-year-old in a store or maybe your own who he's not able to get the candy he wants, not able to have something he wants when he wants it, and he just collapses like the entire world has fallen apart. And you think, oh, come on. You know, there's so many other things that are going on and so many other things that are more important than this. And yet, to that child at that time, it seems like the most important thing in the world. They don't have the perspectives that the adults do. I don't know if that's helpful to think about, but it has been for me to remember that I am the child. And to me, my pain, my sorrow feels like everything. And that's okay because that's where I'm at developmentally. But it's important to remember that there is an adult that is God. And he sees things from a different perspective, a more hopeful perspective. That's in line with a perspective that I've come up with recently. I've made the observation that this world is populated by 8 billion toddlers. (laughs) And that really is the case, especially when comparing us with our Father in Heaven. We just don't know. Even the best of us. Yeah. So let's go on in chapter 42 of Job, starting in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Skipping to verse 5. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is Job's way of humbly acknowledging his weakness, sins, and limitations before the Lord. And it also kind of implies that this is a vision that Job is receiving, where he is actually seeing and perhaps talking face-to-face with the Lord. Yeah. Again, this is a poetic book, but that's a possibility. It's in keeping with what we've seen before. Certainly. So let's take a look at verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee, and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, 
and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, and that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. Why do you think the Lord wants us to pray for those who misjudge us? It's not easy to do, but look for how Job was blessed when he did it. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren, and all his sisters, and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him, and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had fourteen thousand sheep, and six thousand camels, and a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand she-asses. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job an hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died, being old and full of days. Now here's an interesting point to ponder. Verse 10 tells us that the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Remember that we learned in chapter 1 that Job had seven sons and three daughters. Yet verse 13 tells us that after his trial, he has seven sons and three daughters. Someone might read that and think, hey, the Lord didn't give Job twice his children. He only gave him the same amount. But for those who understand the eternal nature of families, this is in perfect harmony. For clarity's sake, Job may have lost his earthly possessions at the beginning of the book, but he never really lost his children. Great point. Great point. So what gave Job strength to remain faithful to the Lord in his trials? What principles can we learn from Job's experience? For some thoughts, let's take a look at Elder Joseph B. Worthlin in the 2008 October General Conference. He says, quote, The Lord compensates the faithful for every loss. That which is taken away from those who love the Lord will be added unto them in his own way. While it may not come at the time we desire, the faithful will know that every tear today will eventually be returned an hundredfold with tears of rejoicing and gratitude. One of the blessings of the gospel is the knowledge that when the curtain of death signals the end of our mortal lives, life will continue on the other side of the veil. There we will be given new opportunities. Not even death can take from us the eternal blessings promised by a loving Heavenly Father. Close quote. Very nice. And that's Job. 
You know, there's a lot of chapters that we had to summarize, but I hope you understood the theme. I hope we chose the scriptures that would help to give you a sense of the power that Job's testimony gave to him, the strength that the Lord gave to him, even when he didn't have answers, even when he couldn't comprehend the Lord's purpose, even when he felt maybe abandoned by friends and loved ones, yet the Lord never abandons us, even in our darkest moments. What gems have you taken away from this? What have you learned from Job's perspective and how you might be able to apply it in your own life? Be sure to share that with family and friends. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans.